Uh, it's awesome to be here. Uh, I've been really, really excited about tonight. Whenever the team asked me to be here uh, many, many months ago, uh, originally I said no. Um, but I wanted to be here. That wasn't like a shot at you. I actually really wanted to. Um, but the reason that I wasn't uh, is because my wife and I were about to have our firstborn son uh, who, who actually is in the room tonight. Uh, he has his like little earmuffs. Um, so he can't hear any of you, praise God. But uh, I, I wanted, is it okay if I introduce you via a picture real quick? Y'all wanna see, y'all don't wanna see him. Just kidding, he's really cute. This is Judah Ward. Um, not gonna lie, I'm about to cry. He is adorable. Uh, eight weeks old, nine weeks old, nine weeks old today. I should know that. Uh, but no, he's nine weeks old and he has been uh, just the biggest bundle of joy, the biggest blessing uh, in my life, in my wife Sarah's life. Uh, so it's been just a roller coaster um, for us. There are a lot of things about being a dad that I didn't expect. Uh, they don't give you much of a pamphlet when you leave the hospital, you would think that they get put you through any sort of training. Like you have to go through training to drive, like a whole year's worth of training, but to be responsible for a human life, they're like, eh, you're breathing, that looks great. Uh, and so they just send you home from the hospital. And so we uh, got to take him home. And one of the things that I didn't expect uh, was just how out of shape I was. And I know what you're thinking, I'm not that out of shape, kinda, it's been a tough year. But what I meant is uh, lifting him you use different muscles, like auxiliary muscles that you've never used. And so like, there's no amount of bench press that can protect you from a baby. And so uh, for me, I, I began to have to carry him. And what I mean by carry him is his car seat, which for whatever reason, I guess it's that way they're safe or something in the car, uh, but it's like 8,000 pounds. And so lifting him out of the car seat and like carrying that around everywhere, like people, we took him to Cracker Barrel in the first like few weeks because we're good parents. And so uh, we took him to Cracker Barrel and we're walking through and all like the old women are like, hey, so cute. And I'm like, I'm about to stop talking. I am, my arm is about to fall off. And so uh, earlier, about maybe two weeks ago, uh, I began to notice this back pain in my like uh, right trapezius. And so uh, I'm like, I've never felt this before. And I was getting no sleep. Uh, I, I literally would like, slip my, you can ask my wife. She's like, he was just a baby about this. Like I cried more than Judah did. Like I, it was just terrible. And so uh, the resident here at TLR, his name's Joe. Um, I wish I didn't know this, but he give, he's a really good masseuse. And so I texted him in the office literally a week ago and was like, hey, I tried praying, nothing happened. Can you like make your way? over to the office and he was like, he didn't play any music or anything weird like that, but he just like took this massage gun and it was like drill hammered into my back. And by the grace of God, I'm good. And so uh, we've bounced back from that physical injury. Uh, you see what I did there? So, uh, but you know, in this whole series, we're gonna be talking about for the next few weeks, what it means to bounce back uh, and not just from a physical injury, although that was worth every second of that story. Uh, we're talking about what does it mean to bounce back in life? What does it mean to bounce back mentally, emotionally, spiritually? I, I can't think of a time more than college that you go through just this insane amount of things between, and even if you're not in college, between 18 to 25. It's like this pressure cooker of things that you're gonna begin to need to bounce back from. Kind of like Caleb said just a minute ago that this is bouncing back, not just from anything, but it's bouncing back in our emotions. What does it mean? to have control of our emotions? What does it mean to be able to manage the feelings 
as they come up in our life. And so uh, tonight, we're gonna be talking about one that every single person in the room deals with. Uh, that'd be a shame if only like one of you dealt with it. No, we're gonna talk about one that it, I believe is relatable to each and every one of you at this stage of life and in every stage of your life for the rest of your life. Uh, it is without further ado, drum roll. Ooh, whoa, whoa, anxiety. So the anxiety. And the reason why we're talking about this in week one is because y'all have been labeled as the most anxious generation in the history of mankind. Congratulations, you won an award. That's great. 1,200% more anxious over the last four decades. It just, just keeps on up and to the right, more and more anxiety, right? And for some of you, it's like, that stat made me anxious. And so uh, it just keeps on happening. Now you're 1,201%. So anxiety, it's something that every single person in the room deals with. And if you haven't dealt with it, I would argue that maybe you're dealing with it and you're running from it. Every single one of us has dealt with this in some way, shape, or form, or you will, or your best friend is. And so this is what we're gonna be talking about tonight is what does it mean to bounce back in the face of anxiety? Uh, the world is looking for a cure for this. The world is looking for mechanisms to be able to deal with this. Uh, I, I was, okay, so one of the things that me and my wife argue about is whether or not I'm Gen Z. Uh, I was born in 1997, uh, which depending on what you Google, and using the Google machine, uh, that's an argument for millennial. But uh, depending on what you Google, you'll find different years as Gen Z versus millennial. Uh, and one of the things that she uses as like the biggest like, ha, got you, is that she uses TikTok and I'm that loser on Instagram Reels. Um, you're not a loser if you do that, by the way. That's just me and what she says to me. Just kidding, she's great. But I'm on Instagram Reels, and so I'm like doom scrolling. It's that like weird hour where I'm just like, I don't even know what I'm gonna find. Uh, and it just so happened to be as I was prepping for this talk. And I came across this TikTok that made its way to Instagram Reels about a month later. <laughs> um, and I was watching it, and there was this article. I, it, was just, it was crazy. They were, uh, they were talking about this cure to anxiety or this mechanism that for everybody, uh, it was just this like great tool people to use <laughs> to combat anxiety. Um, and I couldn't actually play the clip because it had a bad word. But uh, I wanted to read every other aspect of it because it was really, really enlightening for me to be able to read about this coping mechanism. Oh, uh, it's a TikTok trend. It's sweeping the nation. Uh, it's this new trend, maybe you've heard of it, called silent walking. Let me, <laughs> you, get, you get it. Um, I'm just gonna read this and stick to my notes. This is a really cool, just kidding, I'm not gonna do that the whole time. This is a really cool TikTok trend that is sweeping the nation called silent walking. Silent walking is going for a walk without your phone, without listening to music, podcasts, or any sort of technology or technological distraction. Podcaster Maddie Mayo takes credit for unintentionally starting a movement that she promises will change your life. She explains that her boyfriend was the one who first challenged her to take a walk without any distractions. No AirPods, no music, no distractions. Just me, myself, and I, she said, on a video that already has over 500,000 views. She went on saying, the first time I was like, no, my anxiety can never, which is probably what you're thinking. But something within me was like, let's just try. She was like really bold and she went on a walk. Okay, whatever. But... She said that in the first two minutes of her walk, it was mental mayhem. That's what she said, mental mayhem. Until she reached a flow state 
which she could finally hear herself think for the first time in years. Yeah, that's the trend called silent walking. And I'm like watching this and I'm like, this is the craziest thing. And it, it, it was this podcaster that realized it's like, man, if you just walk with no distractions, you can begin to feel less anxious. And I'm like, you're a genius. And so uh, if you've never heard of the inv invention of walking and hiking, it's pretty much all people did before 1980. Like that's all that people did for fun. They like hung out and went on walks without iPods or anything. And so, uh, but this is not the only group of people that are trying to figure out anxiety. The Pew Research Institute, uh, they did this study on what the most underlined passage in the whole Bible is. And you would think that it's like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Like even if you don't follow Jesus, maybe you've heard something like that, like eternal life, like all these things. Uh, but, but it's this one right here. It comes out of Philippians chapter four. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bible verses on anxiety. Figuring out what to do whenever you don't have it all figured out in here. Whenever you don't have it all control underneath the hood, emotionally and mentally is the most underlined verse in the Bible by both Christians and non-Christians. You see, the world actually is looking to any wisdom it can get its hands on and trying to figure out, hey, what are we gonna do about this anxiety thing? And maybe you come from a church tradition or maybe you come from a background in a home that the talks that you had surrounding anxiety were, I mean, if anything, motivational speeches that at the end they say, hey, don't be anxious. And then you walked away, maybe even feeling more guilty for the fact that you were anxious and you didn't really have anything to do with the feelings that you were feeling. Maybe for you, they actually brought up a verse like this and they said, hey, if you just pray the anxiety away, it'll go away and then you prayed and then it never did and you didn't know what to do. Maybe for you, your story with anxiety and the conversations the church has had around it is, is this feeling that if you had more faith that you wouldn't struggle with anxiety and then it made you wonder, what do I do with the faith that I have because I'm still feeling anxious? Or maybe for you, it wasn't even that your faith was strong, but that somebody accused you, like, hey, there's gotta be something that you're not confessing. There's gotta be some secret sin. Or maybe nobody said that, but you like implanted that into your own mind. Like, man, maybe there's something like the things that I've done and the ways I've messed up that now this anxiety is a punishment that I'm going through. And today I hope to be a very different talk. And also before we go any further, um, what we're talking about today is the experience of anxiety in a common sense that every single one of us in the room deal with at some point in time. If you are dealing with the condition, the medical condition that is anxiety, I would encourage you to continue to go see a counselor, to go see somebody. Like There is a very different sense in the medical condition that is anxiety. And so if you've been told any of the other things in the conversation around anxiety and made to feel different about something, a disorder or, or, or a sickness that is actually going on within you, one, I'm sorry. But then two, that is a very different thing for you to go pursue and I encourage you to do that. But today, if you find yourself in the category of, hey, I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with worrying, I struggle with fear in weird situations, I struggle with stress and it keeps on manifesting itself and I can't seem to manage it, that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Something that I believe to be true that I found within 
myself, but then also I experience within the life of everybody that I know, whether they follow Jesus or not, is that the presence of anxiety is unavoidable. The presence of anxiety, going through things that would naturally make you anxious as an emotion, it's unavoidable. But today what I wanna talk about is this thing right here, the shackles of anxiety and that they are not required for you in your life. That the presence of anxiety is unavoidable. That's gonna, that's gonna befall everybody and no matter your background, no matter your story, no matter your past, present or future, but the shackles of anxiety are not required. And so to kind of make sense, like what do you mean by shackles of anxiety? A, a great definition that I came across for anxiety is the future sense of trauma. That anxiety, if you're taking notes, that anxiety is the future sense of trauma. Being able to see a situation that is off in the distance, being able to see a situation that is coming at you head on and just, it just that feeling of like, ooh, I'm about to feel pain. I'm about to go through something traumatic. I, I'm worried, and it doesn't matter whether or not it's valid. It doesn't matter whether or not it makes sense. It doesn't even matter whether or not you actually go through the thing that is traumatic. You begin to feel, hey, there is a future sense of trauma. And every single one of us are hardwired in a sense to be able to feel that. Uh, you ever heard of the expression, I know that you have a, a deer in headlights. Right now, the neighborhood that uh, Sarah and I are living in, um, there are more deer than I've even people on the planet. Like I, there are so many deer. Like every single time that I go in and out of our neighborhood, I feel like I'm playing Frogger, except I'm one of the cars and it's deerer. Like I, like every, it's a good day if I don't kill Bambi. Like that is the way that I feel every time that I enter and leave my neighborhood. And sometimes whenever my, my, it's at night and the headlights hit the deer, it's now a signal, hey, something is coming and then they get out of the way. And then some of them, they're just like, me, me. Like they're like, just stop deer in headlights. Somehow this is gonna be beneficial for me in my life. And then I break because I'm a decent human being. But uh, so in that moment, for some of us, that future sense of trauma is a signal that, hey, we need to change something in our life because this is a very valid reason to get out of the way of something that is going to hurt us. But for others of us, I'd say for all of us in other situations, we find ourselves being so preoccupied with the future of something that may never happen that we become paralyzed in the present. Has this ever happened to you? That you find yourself so concerned with what's about to happen that you aren't even ready for the things that are currently happening? I found whenever I was in college, um, this is a little bit of my story, I was dating a girl in high school that ended up breaking up with me and I was sad, Chad. And so I experienced this like trauma and, and, and that is traumatic, but like I, I, was, I was hurt in a way that was like, how could she do this? And, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. And it was a pain as a junior in high school that I'd never felt before. Fast forward a little over a year that like I had spent some time working on myself and like, I, and what it meant is no one would date me. And so I get to the end of high school and I finally begin a relationship with this girl. And then we go off to college and he was a boy at UGA. She was a boy, girl, at, <laughs> at GCSU. She, I'm not dating her anymore. That was ridiculous. Okay, she was a girl at GCSU. Yeah, that relationship ended too. Now you feel like a jerk. Um, 
But she went to GCSU and the thing that I was told, which many of you, if you've ever gone into your freshman year of college or just that year after high school dating somebody, what is the one thing that everybody tells you is like, ah, it's probably not gonna last in college. It's really, really optimistic, right? It's not gonna last in this next season of life. And everybody was telling us that. We were at two different colleges that this relationship wasn't going to make it that much farther. And so I began to get really anxious that I was gonna experience the same kind of pain that I did whenever I was in high school. And so I began to live and my entire purpose in the relationship was to make sure that I didn't do anything wrong. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this place in a relationship where you're anxious, but you're constantly asking the other person for validation, trying to get them to affirm you, trying to get them to tell you, no, I'm never gonna break up with you. And it's like, but we're not engaged. There's no, like, there's no marriage, but like, just promise me that my life isn't about to suck. And then you become a shell of yourself and a version of yourself that's trying to not endure pain. And it's a lot less fun. It's a lot less authentic. And so then she begins to feel like, hey, his whole personality is changing. And whenever we hang out, it feels like we're just trying to keep this relationship together, even though there's not really anything wrong. So then she becomes paralyzed by the anxiety and she becomes a version of herself that isn't fully healthy. And then you have two people that just don't wanna lose each other, but are shells of themselves, paralyzed by fear. And then they end up breaking up because the relationship has changed. But at the root of all of it is actually just trying to make sure that we control it and that the relationship doesn't change but then it's over because two people were paralyzed by fear. Regardless of whether or not you've been in that situation, every single one of you have experienced what it's like to have to study for a test that you're nervous about. And on the other end of that test is, is a result and is a grade that then becomes a judgment on you and who you are. And so you spend, have you ever spent all your time worrying about a test that it occupied the time that you should have been studying for the test? And the reason you worried for the test is because you didn't wanna fail it, but then the time that you didn't spend studying was the reason why you failed the test? Yeah, can I get an amen? Like that is the like, I'm paralyzed by fear. And then you end up in this cycle over and over and over again. So we're gonna look back into that passage in Philippians chapter four and what it says actually is gold. Like the most underlined passage in the Bible isn't the most underlined just because it's about anxiety, but because it's super, super wise. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says to a group of people that deal with anxiety the same way that you and I do, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I don't think there's anybody in the world that would like hear the phrase, like, do you want the peace of God that is with you no matter what logical understanding there is of what's going on? Every single one of us, whatever you think about God, be like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that despite all circumstances. Yeah, I'll take that no matter what kind of peace, but that's a tall order in the beginning. Do not be anxious about anything. This tells you what to do, but it doesn't exactly tell you how to do it, right? Like this tells you what a follower of Jesus should experience with anxiety, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. And where a lot of people stop after verses six and seven is right on the footsteps of the how. We continue to read in verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy. These are the things that you should think about. And the problem is that many of us, whenever it comes to anxiety, is that we think that there's supposed to be a fix that's like, man, if I could just go do something, immediately everything's gonna be done. If I could just go, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like a one-stop shop to fix all the problems. I mean, that'd be amazing if that exists. And then we read a verse like this, and if whenever I read this for the first time, I was like, hey, thinking as the call to action isn't much of an action. It's thinking. Thinking, no action. Action, no thinking. Like, I, I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. And the reality is, is that for many of us in the room, whenever we think of thinking, we're thinking of the unprocessed, unintentional thoughts that just come to your mind as you go about your day. But intentionally processing and pursuing and trying to figure out what is going on might be one of the most important actions that you do here in 2023, 2024 school year. That thinking isn't just an action, it is an activity, and it's an activity that scientifically speaking combats anxiety. Uh, Dr. Shinwei Williams, this is somebody that helped us a lot with our content. Uh, she is a medical professional and a licensed counselor that helped us with everything that we're doing. This wasn't just a lot of uh, pastors got into a room is like, what does God say about anxiety? That for sure happened. But we brought in people that could see, hey, from a medical perspective, because I don't know anything about science. Uh, from a medical perspective, what is actually going on in your brain? And she told us this, this is a quote straight from her. Anxiety doesn't like activity. Anxiety doesn't do good with activity. The feeding grounds for anxiety is for nothing. Is doom scrolling. It's just, man, I, I, I want to rest and relax just by doing nothing and vegging. But have you ever done nothing and vegged and then on the other side of it, you were more tired than whenever you started? Is because that's the place that anxiety feeds the most. And so anxiety doesn't like activity. And so the activity of thinking on whatever is right and noble and pure and true actually is the tool that I want you to walk out of here today having at least one tool. I don't want, I do want you to be encouraged. I do want you to be moved, but I don't want this to be another talk where you're not given an actual tool to be able to use in the real world whenever you deal with anxiety. And so that verse in Philippians 4, 8 of what to think on, there's, uh, it's really, really cheesy what I'm about to say, um, but it's a way that I can remember. It's a way that you can remember how it is that we're supposed to combat anxiety actually in the real world. Um, what is it that everybody hates uh, getting around their house and you can't stop it and getting bit by them are ants. Nobody likes ants. Ants are bad. Um, the, there was a movie that came out about them and it was like the Kroger brand Bugs Life. But uh, I love, love this idea of like, hey, whenever you see ants, you need to get rid of ants. So ants, what we're gonna have this stand for, and you can write this down or you can put it in your notes page, is an automatic negative thought. Automatic negative thought. These are the things that come into our mind every single day, an automatic negative thought as a reaction to the things that we experience in this life. 
that whenever we experience things that are driving our anxiety, we automatically have a negative thought. And it's not just about our circumstance, but it's then taking it a step further and identifying them with our identity. So an automatic negative thought. What are you gonna do with these thoughts, the thoughts that pop up? One of them is question them. Is like, hey, whenever you fail a test, automatically the negative thought is like, I failed the test, so I am a failure. And so you question that and it's like, hey, are you actually a failure just because you failed something? No. Is your life actually over? Are you actually going to fail the class? I can't tell you how many times I didn't get the grade that I wanted and I thought the class is over and then I actually just did simple math and I'm like, okay, I can recover. Like question it is like, does this actually mean that? Did the text, the cryptic text that they sent you, does it actually mean that there is something wrong with y'all or is there something wrong with them? Question it. Another thing with automatic negative thoughts is this right here, replace them. This is one of my favorites. Because I can't tell you how many times in my life that I have thought about something from my past, something that I did, something that had been done to me that I continue to carry with me to this day and be like, man, that's shame talking. Feeling condemnation from something that happened 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago, that continues to haunt me right now. And then I have the automatic negative thought, am I still those things? Is that not just something that I did or was done to me, but is that my personality? And then I gotta replace it with God's word and maybe scripture or something you hear in music. But one of the things for me, whenever I'm feeling condemned, I'm like, no, Romans 8, 1, for, for therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit is life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is something that I am replacing, transferring one for the other. I am not condemned because of my past, no matter the thoughts that come up in my life. Another one is dismiss them. That I am just going to not let things that don't carry the weight that they should carry the weight that they shouldn't. Kind of like in court, whenever there's evidence that is just invalid or doesn't make sense, you dismiss that in court. Nah, the evidence is dismissed. I'm gonna compare that, is it right? Is it true? Is it noble? Is it trustworthy? Is it something that I should be thinking about? And if not, dismissed. That's not ignoring. Ignoring is not asking the question and processing it in the first place. But after I ask the question, I'm gonna compare it. Does this actually hold weight? And the last one for automatic negative thoughts is fight them. And what I mean by fight them is that you are not made to fight these thoughts alone. But that's why you have a small group leader to be able to bring into this conversation. That's why there are amazing healthcare providers and healthcare professionals and counselors. I mean, I, I said it earlier, but going to a counselor in college was one of the best things that I ever did. And I never thought that I would be the person that would go because there was nothing in my story that I thought absolutely needed it. But that was exactly what the enemy wanted me to think that I was just like, hey, my stuff wasn't too crazy. I shouldn't need that, but the moment I went, I had somebody else alongside me to fight the anxiety that I was feeling on the inside, along with so much else. And so bring other people into your story to be able to fight those automatic negative thoughts with you. And I know that there's somebody in the room right now that hears that strategy or hears the steps and has a lot of doubt because you've tried before 
and you've done the things and it just hasn't fully resulted in the way that you would want. Or maybe you don't quite understand what is that gonna look like in my life? Or maybe you're sitting there going like, hey, Chad, if you knew my story and you knew the things that I had been through, you would understand that the trauma that I am anxious about is a lot more serious than just the everyday worry about getting through today. And if all this was was a practice, I'd say you're right. It's probably not worth its weight. But the practice is built in relationship with the person, in a relationship with Jesus. Hebrews chapter four, one of my favorite passages in the Bible talks about who it is that we actually sing to, who that same God is. Whenever we say, I trust in God, who are we talking about? Well, we're, we're talking about a Jesus. In Hebrews chapter four, This is talking about him. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus has gone through everything that you went through, yet he did not fall into the shackles of anxiety. But he knows what it feels like to go through the trauma that you've went through. He's actually able to empathize, not just sympathize and understand. He's able to walk in your shoes. And since we have a high priest who can empathize, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I'll be honest, over the course of the last few months, it's been some of the sweetest times in my life. But whenever I found out what we were talking about today, I'll be honest, I didn't know whether or not I was gonna be able to talk about this. Because anxiety is something that I'm walking through right now. I don't wanna come across as some expert on a stage that's trying to tell you everything that you should think, but I can tell you that I am somebody right alongside you that is going through these feelings. Um, being a dad has been the greatest thing in the world. But not having control over the safety of your son, not having control over the health of your wife. About four weeks into having Judah, um, we found ourselves in the hospital for him. Having RSV wasn't breathing right. And I actually was at a work retreat and my wife was with her family in Florida. And so being that many hours away and him spending an overnight in the hospital, I just found myself going, God, what are you doing? And then the next week, For a completely unrelated thing, Sarah had to go spend a night in the hospital. And I found myself just going, God, what are you doing? Because in that moment, I realized that I didn't fully trust that God had my back. I believed in him. I believed in the person, I believed in Jesus, but for the first time in my life, I began to process like, what what do I do with these feelings of a complete lack of control? In belief in the person of God, I, I began asking God, God, would you give me a perspective 
in order to just be able to make it through the day. Because honestly, days have been really, really tough in my life recently. It's been overwhelming. It's been stressful. It hasn't been easy. It hasn't been pretty. You can ask anybody that's doing life alongside with me right now. I'm, I am battling that paralysis, what feels like every single day. And as I was prepping for this talk, I was reminded of a place that I often draw perspective, which is from music. And I love the songs that we sing here. Um, but part of my story is that my dad is a pastor and has been my entire life. And part of my wife's story is that her dad is a pastor and has been one her entire life. And he still is a teaching pastor. I had a church much different than this. Maybe you grew up in like this. It's a, it's a small Baptist church in Pensacola, Florida, about a hundred people. And so whenever we go visit the in-laws, we go to a church like that and we, we sit in pews and they sing uh, three things that involve music, uh, one song. Uh, and it's typically always uh, who you say I am. But the other two are hymns. And we pull out the hymnal and they call out a page and we go to it. And the book is old. And so the hymn's gotta be even older than that. And the, the, whenever we were there a few weeks ago, my father-in-law, Jeff's church, we sang a song that completely moved and touched me in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. And it's like, that is the perspective that I would want and I would pray for, for anybody who's struggling with anxiety. The story behind the hymn is amazing. It's one of the most famous hymns that has ever been written of all time. There's a man by the name of Horatio G. Stafford. He was a businessman out of Chicago, lucrative businessman, owned a legal practice there, made a lot of money. And in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost all of it. He had invested in real estate right there along Lake Michigan and all of it was gone. His entire investment overnight, gone. Within that same season, he lost his son to scarlet fever. So Horatio was a man who was not unfamiliar with loss. He was also a follower of Jesus. And so he looked at his family and he said, hey, it's been a crazy few years. They got a little bit more financially stable. We need to go do a vacation. We need to go on, on holiday. And so he, he planned this European vacation for him and his family, which you can imagine in the 1800s, that's a different way of getting there and traveling. But right before they left, there was some unexpected business that he had to attend to. And so he went ahead and sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him. And he decided to stay in Chicago and would follow back three days later. And on the way, that ship that his wife and his four daughters were on collided with another vessel. And within 12 minutes, the ship was at the bottom of the ocean and over 200 people lost their lives that day. Four of which were his four daughters. And whenever his wife, Anna, got to where they were going, she sent a telegram back to Horatio that said, saved alone, what shall I do? And I can't imagine the hopelessness in that moment. I can't imagine the anxiety in that moment. I can't imagine what it is that he was going through. And like any dad and husband and father would, he got on a boat and he immediately headed straight for her. 
And as he was going over the waters, the captain of the boat that he was on understood the tragedy that had just taken place. And as they were passing over part of the water, he went and got Horatio and he said to him, hey, we're passing over the part of the water where the shipwreck happened. And he took some time to himself. And he jotted down his thoughts. And the words that he would write would become words that would be sung across countries, across time for generations and generations. But in that moment, there were words that he needed to hear in his own soul. And that I believe that some of us tonight need to hear. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Could you imagine what it would be like to be able to have the type of perspective to be able to, whether it's peace like a river or the most traumatic, devastating thing that I've ever gone through, it's well with my soul. Whatever my lot, whatever I have in this life, whatever my lot is in life, I'm gonna say, God, it is well with my soul. And what I love is that he doesn't say, you have encouraged me to say. He doesn't say, hey, you have forced me to say. You have guilted me to say it's well with my soul. It says, you have taught me to say. You have taught me what it means to keep my eyes focused on you. You have taught me what it means to keep my eyes focused on the things that are true and noble and right and pure and excellent and praiseworthy. So that even in my darkest hour, I can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so what we're gonna do now is the band's gonna come out and for some of you, you, you heard that we were doing uh, the, the lyrics of this hymn and you're like, hey, I can sing the whole thing right now. And for some of you, you've only heard that part there in the chorus. But what I wanna do is I want these lyrics as they sing for it to wash over you. You can stay seated, you can stand, you can pray over the person next to you, you can sing, you can journal. But regardless of what it is, what I want for you to do is to spend some time replacing the thoughts, whatever you would say, this is my anxiety to give it to God, to replace it, to dismiss it, to question it, to fight it. And my prayer for you is that you would be able, maybe not today, maybe, maybe not even tomorrow, but that it would be well with your soul. And I believe that that's something that Jesus offers. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you for this time. We praise you for this moment. God, thank you so much that we have a place like TLR to be able to come process not just the good, but the real. Not just the things that we think that we're supposed to say in small group, but that we can actually bring the anxieties, the lack of control, the, the lack of trust, the fear, and we can give them to you. And so God, in this moment, would you allow for your words, these words that are so old, but so real and true to minister to us, that we would be able to say, that whatever our lot, that it is well with mine.